this relationship predates words. It just kind of permeates your soul. The world starts to feel like a different place um, that's full of miracles. And when the world is full of miracles, all of a sudden, it's sacred. One of the biggest roles that religion serves in human societies and in the human psyche is to tell us uh, that things are bigger than us and they last longer than us. And to get us to accept that, which is really hard to accept because nobody wants to die. But when you're out there, this may sound crazy, but when I'm out there and I'm gathering food and I'm just enjoying this incredible world, I don't want to die. But man, I'm like, I'm part of this. And I'm okay that I'll return to it someday. Welcome to the open air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories of how people have found a happier, healthier, more human life outdoors. Today, a meditation on what happens to us when we look closer at the world around us and participate in something humans have been doing for thousands of years. That is, getting to know more intimately the plant life that surrounds us and selectively harvesting them to nourish our body, and more importantly, as Sam Thayer has discovered, our soul. Sam's written three beautiful books that serve not only as how-to guides, but contain essays on how a relationship with nature and view of the earth truly changes when we begin to gather our own food. This episode is brought to you by The Open Air Outpost, a new nature escape with luxury tiny cabin and glamping options just two hours northeast of the Twin Cities. It's a place where we made it easy to put into practice all the wisdom we've learned from the guests on this very show. You can even book unique experiences with some of them as part of your stay. Learn more at openairoutpost.com. Without further ado, Sam, you've said that foraging turns the woods into something sacred. Small miracles are witnessed, and through these we come closer to understanding the miracle that gives us life. I'd love it if you could tell me about maybe several of the small miracles you've witnessed and how those have affected you on a really soul level. You know, uh, we're not hungry enough in this culture, in this day and age, to realize that every meal is a small miracle. And um, I've been hungry enough times to realize what a miracle it is to just have a meal. And so... You know, that was sort of my visceral entry point uh, to this relationship between your emotional self and your nutritional self and between feeding yourself and your soul feeling whole. Um, and but I, when you said it's hard to put into words, I agree. And the reason is because this relationship predates words. I mean... There's every reason to think people have been speaking for hundreds of thousands of years, but this relationship between a creature and its place, you know, this is universal. And um, so the feelings that we have around it, they're deeper and bigger and broader than words, but getting someone out and getting them to go through the process, find it, eat it, and think about it. 
and you don't even need any words in those thoughts. And there's just automatically this strong emotional connection that develops. And that emotional connection isn't temporary and it's not just related to food. It just kind of permeates your soul. And from there, it kind of it goes up into your brain and your eyes and your ears and your nose and the world starts to feel like a different place. All of a sudden, it's sacred. What is it when something is sacred? Uh, and I've thought a lot about this, um, the meaning of sacred. And, and I came up with my definition is that it's when the value of something transcends the current moment. And it also uh, transcends the, uh, the economics that you can currently account for. So almost in a way, this like it's like an, an an evolutionary ethic. Like like our species is longer than just our existence here, um, and I think that's really important. Yuval Harari has uh, become you know famous and rich by selling the idea that by plugging into technology, we will become gods and live forever. You know, this is the thesis of his book Homo Deus, Human God. Um, and it's tapping into this, you will live forever. Just plug into the technology, you know, just accept it. This is your fate. This is your future. And I say, no, 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 no. We, we have lived already for millions and millions of years and we're going to live for millions of years. Plug into the real world you came from. Yes. Yes. So, so I, that's where my soul goes for comfort. Not to the idea that I will plug into this technological process that, that will make me a god but that I will plug into this incredible matrix of life that already gave me life, and I'm okay that I'll return to it someday. Well, and that's, I mean, you've hit on the entire reason I wanted to create this podcast is that I think we're overloaded, we're saturated with our, our digital lives, have, have removed us from nature in a way, and I feel like coming back is the antidote to that. And I also agree, like, those peak moments where you go like, okay, I'm okay with death because you're experiencing something so powerful and bigger than yourself that it doesn't, it doesn't worry you anymore. I get that over and over again. Yeah. You know, sometimes I'm out harvesting rice and it's quiet and I'm looking over the rice bed and I'm looking at some swans that are flying in the distance and, you know, I can hear, I can hear some mink frogs and I think I'm part of this. This is okay. Someday I'm I'm gonna go back into this muck maybe, and I'll be part of this. That's okay, you know. Like I don't want it right now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, I've got things to do here. But I mean, and there's millions of us. We're searching for that that thing in our soul that says you're in a good place. Let it be. So that's what foraging does, not just for me, but for everybody that does it. They might not put it into those words, but they feel that peace and that wholeness in their soul. And it all comes from that process of plugging into the circle of life um, that even if you think you're separate from, you're not separate from. And the crazy, one of the crazy things about it for me is that I was going out with Mr. Forager Chef Alan Bergo, and I was going out with you. I was learning with my head you know, in a sort of factual academic way, like this is this plant, this is this plant. Um, that was super fascinating and interesting to me on a head level. 
But then, like over time, and I was telling Alan, it was like almost over a year. Like the next spring, when I saw things coming back, that's when it was like, oh my God, like this has been doing something on a deeper level that I didn't even know was happening really, or at least to the extent that I, that I then felt it when I was so excited to see certain plants coming back and I was starting to connect the dots of how they're interacting with each other. And, um, you know, when the lilacs are blooming, more mushrooms will be coming or, or like those little signposts that help you live in the seasons too, which I think is another part of it that makes you just feel closer to nature and brings you back there. Um, but it's interesting how it sort of happens over time, too. There's like the immediate moment where you're like, this is beautiful and I'm so happy I'm doing this. But then later you're like, oh, wow, this has been having a deeper effect that I didn't even really realize. Um, and I think that happens over time. And I know this has been a really long term pursuit for you. Um, the act of gathering wild food goes back till you were, was it four years old? Or yeah, thereabouts? I was four. <laughs> my first memories of foraging were when I was four. Can you tell me about the some of those first memories and how that put you on this path? Well, so this was really simple, but this plant called wood sorrel uh, that lots of kids eat and teach each other to eat, and adults aren't even involved with the transmission of this information. Um, and and but most adults that allow their children to play outside and see their children eating this, they think, oh, I ate this when I was a kid. They have a name for it too, right? You, well, it was, so my older sisters called it Juicies and showed it to me, and I ate it with them. And um, but other people call it lemongrass, sour class, sour grass, lemon clover, all, all kinds of different names. Um, there's just a small number of these plants that get passed down among children, which in and of itself is really fascinating. Um, but for me, um, I can't quite pinpoint why I had this fascination with free food. Um, but when I think back about my childhood in the bigger picture, what it was is that, um, my parents didn't want to have five children. They felt like they were supposed to because they were Catholic and they really weren't excited about being parents. And uh, I used to get a lot of guilt trips over my parents feeding me. And so... I guess I was an emotional child and I thought, well, fine, you don't want to feed me. You think, you know, I'll go feed myself. And so if I heard that something was food, I remembered it because my, my goal from probably five or six years old was I want to learn to feed myself. I want to learn to feed myself. And so th that was, you know, I had all, memorized where all the apple and crab apple trees were in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, and I knew what everybody had in their garden and I stole from all the gardens in my neighborhood. And um, but I also if I, you know, I, I learned what a butternut tree was and a black walnut when I was little. And a lot of people might hear that when they're five years old. But I didn't forget. I mean, from the first time I was told butternut and black walnut, we had one of each on our block. Um, I was cracking those nuts on the sidewalk with the rock, you know, just pounding them. Uh, anything I heard about that was food, I remembered. And then I was probably 11 when I realized there was actually books about this topic. <laughs> I was like, wow. So I probably knew, I don't know, 20 different wild edibles at that time, which I had learned. I found wild strawberries. I knew right away, oh, that's a wild strawberry because we had strawberries in the garden. So okay. I, I knew it. And, and I had neighbors that also had strawberries in the garden. So, right. <laughs> so, you know, growing up, it, I mean, it totally makes sense, you know, where you started and, and, and how that sort of evolved. But when did, was there a moment when you were like, I want to make this my, my life's work to, to write about this and, and initiate other people to this practice? I don't know when I decided it would be 
my life's work. I thought when I was a teenager that I would be a herpetologist. I'll study reptiles and amphibians. Mm. and Or maybe an ornithologist, study birds. And then my other thing was I thought maybe I was going to be a foreign language teacher. I, that was what I really liked to study most that I could study in school. Oh, wow. um, and I had an aunt who did that. But this was always something that was really important to me. Uh, and I wanted to do it for my sustenance. But when I was 18 or 19, I just realized that there was a bunch of other people that might be interested in this same thing. And I posted a little flyer at a library that I was going to lead a plant walk and five people came. Um, and that was kind of the beginning. I thought, Hey, five other people interested in this. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, it it just grew from there. That's awesome. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, what you learn in school and that idea of an education that's about learning names or observation. And one of the things that I want to ask you about is like, when you first go out and you learn these things, um, it kind of is observation. You're like looking, okay, this is this plant. It looks like this. It grows near this. Um, but something happens, something changes when we take the time not only to to learn these things about or observe nature with a capital N, but start to interact. And you've you've written a lot about that. How how does our appreciation change when we move from observation to participation in that way? Well, when you participate, you feel like you belong. When you're just observing, you're an outsider. Um, but when you participate, you're part of it. And when you're part of it, it's part of you. It is the human birthright to have your hands in nature and feed yourself. And through that act, it's a nearly automatic response uh, of what we call gratitude. And that word gratitude, um, you know, it wasn't just made up. It's not a politically correct new term. It's an ancient term for an ancient feeling. And it's as important as fear and jealousy. It's a basic human emotion that says, the thing that sustains your life, you need to appreciate and be careful of how you use it. And um, foraging breeds gratitude. And like gratitude is the basis of a sustainable long-term relationship with the thing you have gratitude towards. If you don't have gratitude in a personal relationship, it's going to fall apart. And if you don't have gratitude in a relationship with the land, it's going to fall apart over time. And foraging automatically, it's like the wellspring of gratitude is your fingertips and your mouth through the act of of foraging. Well, and this, you touch on a really important point that I definitely wanted to get into is that you talk about participation leading to, like you said, gratitude, appreciation. And when you have an appreciation for something, you want to protect it, right? And there are other things that you can do also. And so this idea that you've talked about in the act of gathering, you can become a steward. Can you talk about how the act of foraging can actually help certain plant populations and and what is that mindset and what is that practice that you bring to it that makes it not only sustainable, but makes these things flourish? Let's say that I'm going out to harvest some ramps um, and I have a clump of 18, uh, common clump size, and I pull out 11 of the 18. I've left seven plants behind. Now, in disturbing the ground around that clump, um, which I had to do to get those bulbs out, I have performed a service for those ramps that they cannot perform for themselves. 
And the dis- soil disturbance, anyone who has a garden knows that soil disturbance helps seeds incorporate into the soil and germinate. And it definitely also works that way with ramps. And so I have thinned out the initial clump. There will be higher seed production, and then they, the seeds will have a place to actually germinate. So if, if I am going to responsibly harvest the ramps like I do on my property they will actually do better than if they are not harvested. And I see this again and again with my relationship with certain plants, not, not all of them. Like if, um, you know, if I'm going to go harvest blackberries, I'm not making more blackberries through the act of harvest. If I'm going to defecate in the woods somewhere, I might make more blackberries or raspberries. And that's what they wanted, right? They, they know that the chance of a payoff for them is small. And I occasionally return that chance for payoff for them. And so you're, you're, you're actually doing the ecologically appropriate thing in that instance too. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it makes me think about this idea of the gardens aren't just the typical European idea of a garden. And you talk about this idea, which has been practiced, you know, the world over, right? For thousands of years by indigenous cultures. Um, and that's tending the wild. Can you talk about how you talk about that as, as eco-culture and how that differs from agriculture and just like give us an intro to eco-culture as you see it. Sure. So um, ag- agriculture, cultivating a field, eco-culture, cultivating an ecosystem. We, as far as we know, the, the best evidence we have agriculture is maybe 12 to 13,000 years old. Um, whereas managing landscapes, uh, natural ecosystems, there's pretty good evidence for that about 100,000 years ago in Southern Africa. Say, so if you're managing the pre-existing vegetative community or curating a community that reasonably could exist at that location with, without uh, human interference, that would be ecoculture. Um, and it actually can be really productive. So, you know, we still have blueberry barrens managed for blueberry production. We still have uh, Brazil nuts are probably the most important crop as a worldwide commodity that's managed that way. Um, but until recently, most of the world's oil palm uh, supply was managed native stands in West Africa. Now we've applied agriculture to the oil palm. We have cleared rainforest in Indonesia and Malaysia and made plantations of uh, of oil palm that uh, it, that it's very destructive. But in its original uh, production method in West Africa, it was one of the most sustainable and productive agricultural practices that the world has ever known. Uh, literally, these natural managed stands in West Africa, they still produce more oil per acre than a canola field under modern management. So uh, it can be an incredibly productive way of producing food and sustainable and support wildlife at the same time. And how does that come to life for you? Like, how are you tending the wild and, and what's an approachable way for someone to, to start doing that? Well, the great thing about it is, is uh, you can do it on whatever scale you want. It could be, I have a little patch of woods close to the house that I have this high diversity of stuff and I, I throw... I throw compost, uh, nutshells into that area so it's highly fertile, and I have all kinds of native plants that come up there. It's also the spot the birds love to come in the winter to eat the seeds of various plants. Um, it's kind of attracts wildlife and me, and it's just probably a twentieth of an acre by my house in the woods. Um, but I also have my sugar bush where I make maple syrup, right? And, and it's managed through thinning out the trees for an optimum density and species composition. Uh, so there's a, and then the understory um, is I, I helping the wild leeks proliferate 
um, in my Sugarbush understory. So there's a lot of different ways you can apply that. Um, and the great thing is I get a lot of food from that. I get food for the family. I get food to sell. And it's not any worse for wildlife. I think I can make a really good argument that it's better for wildlife because of the management that I'm doing in either place. The, the piece that you were talking about, the woods by your house, you mentioned there were multiple plants. What kind of plants are there and, and how are you how are you helping them to, to flourish specifically? So I've got ostrich fern, uh, ramps. I've got the Canadian wild garlic, the native, another native onion. Uh, I have tall wood mint. Um, there's so many things. In my, uh, there's wood nettle in there, cut leaf coneflower, cow parsnip, uh, stinging nettle, um, uh, honewort or mitsuba, the Japanese vegetable. Um, there's a few more things in there, but that's all that stuff is kind of packed in there. It's, it's not any more dense with food than native, you know, floodplains. Some of them I could take you to that are just a few miles from here. Um, but I maintain that right next to my house and all over the world, different indigenous cultures were managing exactly like that small areas near the residence managed intensively for a variety of vegetables and then large areas on the landscape were managed usually collectively but not always collectively um to to produce like the, the greater bulk of food so it could have been you know oak savannas managed for acorn production or hickory groves managed for nut production you know in north america um or in many other parts of the world and uh this is still really viable today a that's that's beautiful b where do you go to to get that knowledge like are there in, in indigenous communities leaders writers like where could someone go and, and learn more about the the actual food history of north america well it's not like there's one clearing house of information you know um yeah. there are sources um you know my friend linda black elk um she's been she's been working to resurrect the same knowledge i feel like, like we have this kinship because we come from totally different backgrounds and we're like holding hands saying like the same message, you know, um, there's a, the information is out there and some of it though, takes a lot of digging up and a lot of sorting out. I mean, you know, I'm known as an authority on edible wild plants. I'm reading old sources and almost all the old sources are written with this overtone of racism that I have to see through, pick through, wade through and, you know, figure out what was real and what wasn't real, what, you know, or try to figure out. Yeah. Um, it really is partly the process of like resurrecting old knowledge. Um, so are there, are there are there books that you could look to even at this point, like if someone wanted to learn more? Well, I mean, so so one of the books that people turn to is, is Daniel Merman's Native American Ethnobotany. It's this big encyclopedic book, but it, it basically lists plants that have known recorded Native American food uses. Um, and other uses, medicinal and utilitarian. And then it, you know, references where that, that information came from. And most people just stop there. Mm. Um, don't even look at the original sources. Mm. But if you actually take the bibliography from there and look up the original sources, then you, you know, you're, you're getting some information. You're getting what white people recorded that Native Americans were eating or how they were using plants um, in the waning days of that culture being predominant right and so some of this knowledge still exists in the indigenous communities not just in north america but all over the world um and it depends on where you are how robust it is um because the the stuff that was most labor intensive tends to disappear first from the tradition um 
and some stuff is really, really strong tradition still. Uh, the Tinsula or Prairie Turnip tradition out on the Great Plains is still very powerful. Wild rice in the upper Midwest, there's, you know, um, but there's other things. My favorite root vegetable that I've ever eaten, something that I grow now, is this plant, Oxypolis rigidior, that all of white people literature says is deadly poisonous. Hmm. Only a few old Cherokee women like remembered that that really was food and reported in the 1950s it got recorded by by you know ethnographers and then it got filed in some book somewhere that everyone basically ignored and assumed well all the literature says that's deadly poisonous so it must not be it must be a mistake Mm. and i thought you know what i got a bunch of Old white guys tell me that's deadly poisonous, but there's two old Cherokee women who said in 1954 that you could eat that. I'm going to go eat it. I'm going to go try it. And I did. And you know what? It is like now my favorite root vegetable and I'm growing it in my orchard. I'm like, like this is how knowledge is like hanging by a thread. It's terrifying. It, but I, I get back to this. I mean, do you really think that this continent wouldn't have marvelous vegetables and and grains and and foods like it's just uh at face value it's a very strange proposition that we needed to bring things from syria to feed ourselves here we talked a lot about like how we can look at food but let's get a little bit into the the practical for for just a minute um when let's say someone is like they're interested in this idea, but you know, has haven't experienced it. Obviously, you have three amazing books that serve not only as like practical, I've used them that way, but also like they inspired me to learn more. Like I love how you write about wild food. Where where do you suggest uh people that maybe haven't actually gathered wild food before, where do you tell them to go to start? Uh, I, I give people the same advice. Start with one plant and a plant close to home. And uh so you know, it, learning to forage in a way is like learning a language. It's complex. And there's a lot of things and it builds on itself over time. So I recommend to people to pick a plant that they've been wondering about. that grows somewhere that they frequent, their yard, a park they go to, and learn to identify it. Once you learn to identify that plant, then you learn if it's edible. Uh, the chances are better than 50% that that's going to be an edible plant if it's growing in a place you frequent. Um, because plants in disturbed environments are more likely than average to be edible. Um, and then you learn about how to use it. But once you learn that one plant and you learn to recognize it, you'll remember it for the rest of your life. If you eat it once and you like it, you're going to have it in your back pocket the rest of your life. So start close to home. And I mean, I think my books are good. Um, there's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of people out there. The easiest way is of course, if you know somebody that takes you out, sits you down next to the plant and says, well, this is what this is. This is how you use this. And here, let's try it together. That's the best way. But it's not always easy to find that. If you can, go for it. Right on. Um, What are you currently reading um, or have read in the past, either about nature, the outdoors, or wild food that's inspiring you? It's kind of funny. When I was a kid, my mom used to tell her friends that I was her her little Yule Gibbons, but I didn't know who Yule Gibbons was. And for listeners that might not know, Yule Gibbons is the author that really thrust forging into the public discourse 
in the 60s and 70s. You probably know him as on the Grape Nuts ad, but he wrote a, a series of books that are just beautiful. Those books were so incredibly inspiring yeah. to me. It was Stalking the Healthful Herbs. That was probably that was really a changing moment in my life. Yeah, Stalking the Wild Asparagus was one of the first ones I think I read too. And again, it's it's not only useful and practical, it's beautiful writing. Um, so yeah, I, I love that one as well. Um, if there was like one thing you would hope listeners would take away from this interview or take away from your books, what would it be? Oh, well, I, when people ask me why to forage, um, I like this little quote from Francois Couplin, who teaches wild edibles in France and Switzerland. He says, we only protect what we love and we only love what we know. And so get out there and find something to love. And uh, because love is really what it's all about. It's about finding a place you belong and feeling like you belong. And it's great, it's great to have those relationships with people. It's vital. But I think it's also vital to have those relationships with nature. And I think that's a big part of what's lacking in the world today. I cannot think of a better way to end this conversation. Thank you for that. Appreciate you being here. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Sam Thayer is the author of The Forger's Harvest, Nature's Garden, and Incredible Wild Edibles. You can find his books through any major reseller or purchase directly through his site at foragersharvest.com. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction. See and hear more at credononfiction.com. And we'd love to see and hear from you. As part of Open Air Humans, we're collecting something we call Open Air Diaries. We'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck. Tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you. If you'd be so kind to record that story on your phone is great and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'll be collecting these and playing one at the end of each episode moving forward. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.